Welcome to the Sales Compensation Show, where we share the latest sales performance research, insights, and solutions through in-depth discussions with industry experts. So put that spreadsheet away, grab a beverage, and enjoy the conversation. I'm your host, Justin Lane. Today, it's my pleasure and honor to welcome to the Sales Compensation Show, Dr. Robert Bichar, Senior Director of Worldwide Incentive Compensations and Mergers and Acquisitions. Dr. Robert, could you please describe to us a little bit about your role there at Autodesk and what you're up to? Thanks for the introduction, Justin. Yeah, I say my name is uh, Robert Bichar. I am the Senior Director at Autodesk for all sales incentive comp roles, basically anybody that sells. In addition to that, um, also take care of the mergers and acquisitions with respect to the go-to-market integration and the sales integration, as well as the diligence priors. Uh, Also cover roles and responsibilities, as well as when I talk about sales incentive comp, it's the end-to-end. So it's literally from design to implementation, also to operations of sales incentive comp. Okay. So I think you've been at Autodesk now for about seven years? Total of eight, actually. I was there for a year, took a little leave of absence for a year, and I've now been back for just over seven years. That's correct. Okay. I think a lot of things have changed in the world in the last seven, eight years. What have you seen as some of the biggest challenges in your role there at Autodesk? I think the biggest change that we've seen in the past years is, well, first of all, a business model transition for Autodesk moving from perpetual to subscription, which sounds simple in that, well, it's just another way of doing licensing. But at the end of the day, it requires a very different approach in the sales side. And as such, it also requires a very different intel on your sales incentive compensation, where in the past, it was very much more transactional, easy. You know, you sold something, you got paid for it, and then there was just maintenance that pretty much took care of itself. But nowadays, it's more focused around the renewal, the upsell, the expansion of a subscription. So renewing a subscription for the same as it was last year is usually a losing prophecy on the sense of sales and overall. So from that perspective, the insight you need with respect to sales incentive comp has moved us from where we were in the past with incentive comp management, which just managed the payout and that was all good. It all worked perfectly fine to, I actually want to model, I want to know details, I want to be able to do what if, I want to predict more. So it moved away from where we were in the past of ICM, just to use the acronym, to SPM or sales performance management. And so when our senior management and executives came and asked those questions and our ability to model in Excel was literally our biggest inhibitor that's when we started looking around and trying to find a solution that actually did true sales performance management. And I should explain what I mean by that. So this is my personal sort of definition of sales performance management. A lot of companies define sales performance management as sort of the upfront, which is territory management, seller assignments, quota assignments. While that is maybe part of it, I refer to those as tools upfront, I don't necessarily see that as true performance management. Performance management for me is on the other side of the equation, which is, okay, I have this information coming out of my commission engine, 
But what am I going to do with it? What does it tell me? What does it show me? What, what can I predict with it? What kind of analytics can I do with it? It comes back to the whole question of AI. And that's my personal opinion on SPM. AI is the key component that actually is the true value add to SPM. We're going from ICM to SPM in that I'm now able to model things. I'm able to predict outcomes. You're able to run multiple different scenarios that in the past in an ICM solution were just not possible, whereas in the world of SPM, especially the one that we live in, is now all of a sudden possible and far more, I'll call it, in a timely manner without the limitations of my intellectual ability to implement Excel spreadsheets. It's basically the system is so much smarter than I am. And so my limitation is basically what ideas I can come up with and challenge the system to do more, which in the past was basically the limitation of what I can actually technically do in Excel. And so you're asking what were the challenges we've seen in the past? Well, that was the main challenge in that I was asked, well, how are you going to predict what the costs are going to be? And sort of, of course, we have our Monte Carlo models and everything we use around it. But can I truly, truly tell you, if I put a spiff in place, what is going to be the impact? What is going to be the cost? Is it going to be beneficial? Is it going to drive the behavior we actually want based on prior behavior patterns that we can see in there? I wasn't able to do that. Now I can. So sorry, that was number. a long explanation of uh, our current situation, what I do, and one of the challenges and focus areas we have. Yeah, we touched on this idea with a number of the other guests of rearward looking, just saying what has happened versus this idea of trying to look forward, pull in maybe different data sets than you had before and think about what is going to happen. Uh, what is that realm of possibility and, and range of, of what's happening? I heard an interesting statistic earlier this week at a, a sales operations conference. And they said for committed forecast, so deals that the sales team thinks for sure are going to come in, that only 51% of those deals are coming to fruition and the rest they're losing either to no decision or, or a named competitor. And it made me really think about that uh, you know, the sophistication and corporate context that people need to build into these future-looking algorithms. Because what's 51% for one company, maybe it's 75% for another. And then you get down to the rep level and this kind of thing of who's the most optimistic rep versus not. Looking forward gets difficult at times. That's one of the reasons we actually don't want reps to do forecasting. We want managers to do forecasting that can put a certain level of objectivity but it's still a little bit subjective. Um, reps, of course, one's more optimistic, one's more pessimistic, so therefore you'll get a tainted picture. But to highlight the point that you just mentioned, that's exactly why we went to SPM, because with that, we're able to integrate components, for example, out of our CRM system that give a prediction that shows you past behavior drives future outcomes, i.e., what has happened in the past helps you predict what is going to happen in future. And if you have reps who are overly optimistic and basically never close, that becomes apparent. You have reps who constantly, I'll call it sandbag for lack of a better term, that'll show. And so the algorithms that we're being provided now allow us to actually do an analysis based on that, where in the past we did it 
based on, I'll call it simple math. How much did you have to go? What is what is the likelihood? What did we see last year? But it's not at the true individual rep level. So it gives you more, I'll call it 150,000 feet, and you're probably about right, but about right is not right. And so with the system we have today, we're now able to do a prediction far more precisely at the individual rep level, which also highlights the part of where does the manager have to actually step in and assist and coach the seller on being more realistic as to what sales stage they put their respective opportunity in. So we have a sales methodology that I'll say is 90% independent of a sales rep's personal opinion. It tries to be as objective based on milestones, but at the same time, that's still not 100% waterproof. So using our SPM solution, we're now able to basically combine the two and make a prediction as to where it will go based on in the past, based on what we've seen, based on the attainment achieved, and based on sales cycle, sales timeline, and so forth. So we have entered a new generation or a new time of sales performance management that we didn't have before. At Autodesk, my understanding that you folks have a pretty sophisticated go-to-market strategy. You sell both directly and through a pretty robust channel organization. One question I get asked quite a bit from companies, maybe they're just embarking down this idea of having a channel or a partner program. What advice would you give to folks to avoid this idea of channel conflict under the guise of compensation? Right. So I'll jump on one thing with respect to perceived channel conflict. Okay. The one thing I would always suggest is if you're going to sell through a channel in addition to direct, make it as neutral as possible for the respective seller so that they initially, so that they understand that the channel is actually means to an end to scale because otherwise I will never hit my sales target. If I try to do everything myself, there is a certain limitation as to what I can achieve. If I include partners or go through a different channel in addition to my own direct efforts, all of a sudden my outreach becomes far broader than I could ever have on my own. And so therefore, we've been doing it for quite a long time and working with channels quite extensively. And so we don't have to do anything specific or special for it. It is a common understanding that this is a means to an end to scale. Slightly different topic, being part of a global organization. This year, I think we've seen some challenges with currency and the idea that the dollar all of a sudden became very strong relative to other currencies. Occasionally I get asked questions about when to set it, how to set it, should they make adjustments for big fluctuations? What's your philosophy on currency conversion uh, and you know, should people be making money through arbitrage uh, as a sales rep? Well, that's, uh, that's not an easy one. Um, it, it depends a lot on the country's inflation rate. It depends a lot on do you change prices in the respective countries. What we try to do is work with a fixed currency rate, i.e. We, we call it constant U.S. dollars as a conversion rate in which we set the target and keep that through the whole year. Uh, for compensation purposes. Now, actual revenue, of course, is based on actual conversion rate or exchange rate, but the commission is based off of a fixed amount, a fixed conversion rate. Otherwise, you see yo-yoing up and down, which would be very complicated for salespeople to actually predict what they're going to earn, and it would also be fairly unfair. 
So only in the event that we make adjustments to prices and other things do we actually tweak things like quotas or other targets. But otherwise, we use constant U.S. dollars as a fixed exchange rate throughout the year. The other idea that I heard at this conference just recently is that the average tenure for sales reps continues to shrink at organizations. And the number that somebody you know put up on a screen was approximately 1.8 years of time spent at a company on average by a sales rep. You start to think about the idea of ramp time to full productivity, and then how long do we get to have this rep uh, at the company fully productive? Do you feel like sales compensation plays a part of that tenure and the ability to increase it and other things, maybe even quota setting and, and territory? Can we keep reps longer if we do it right? So there's a combination of things there. Compensation definitely plays a role. That is, do you give the respective new rep time to ramp, learn the customer base, learn the ins and outs of the respective company, learn all the tools, everything you need to be successful as a salesperson? That's one. The second is, do you set the quota based on that person's ability from that moment onwards going forward in, I'll call it a ramped method in that you're not 100% productive in quarter one, but you might be in quarter four depending on what you sell and how you sell it. So ramp time as do you do something like a non-recoverable draw for the first period of time so they get up to speed. Number two, do you do a quota setting based on the potential that the person has and is able to ramp with customers, create the relationships and so forth so that they give them time to create expected earnings throughout the year and don't feel like they're going to be unsuccessful. But another factor, so those two or three, are all supporting components for the tenure of a rep. I think at the same time, it also plays a significant role as to what they're selling. If the product or products the sales rep is selling require a significant amount of knowledge, then usually that level of expertise is, one, not necessarily applicable everywhere. And there's usually a certain level of pride in it as well. So the more, I'll call it, the more complicated or knowledge-based the sale is, the more tenure we see overall. The easier a product is, the less education a salesperson requires to sell it, and the more you'll see a turnover. Because at that moment, they can move to something else that sells just as easily and move on. I don't think that's dependent just on you know junior people or basically people who just started their career. They want to change more often or more senior people look to the next, where can I make more money? I think it depends a lot on, do you give them the time to learn? And once they learn, do you show them that they can actually make the money that you promised in the first place? Which is not an irrelevant part. So don't budget for people to have an average attainment of 75% overall at the end of the year, because that's not a very appealing carrot for anybody. And they figure it out pretty quick. So be honest, be upfront, give them a chance to make their respective quota. That success, including limelight, usually drives a lot of loyalty of the respective salespeople to your organization. Yeah, made a comment there that made, made me think about another topic, uh, this idea of, you know, when people think about a quota attainment curve across the sales organization. You know, when I talk to sales leadership, they often have targets of, if I could get 70% of the team to 70% quota, you know, they would think that, might be success. You know, finance coming at it from a different angle of saying, hey, we got to hit budget. 
you know, they're modeling things around 100% quota. You mentioned Monte Carlo analysis earlier, where you're looking at a wide spectrum of potential attainment. How do you think about that when you're doing your initial forecast modeling and costing? Like, what do you, how do you think about attainment at the rep level and aggregate? What's a good way to do that for folks? I think it's no secret. And this is, I'll call it, I'm, I'm old, so I can uh, pull back on, on sort of uh, old wise tales of what is the best idea for with respect to attainment. We always try to get roughly 60% at or above target. That gives you a nice bell curve distribution. Not everybody will make it every single year. That's just reality. Uh, there could be issues with respect to a customer. There could be issues with respect to a person's performance. That's totally normal. As you have with anything, you have a distribution curve of performance. And so, But you shouldn't aspire to having below an average of 100% attainment. It should always be an average of 100% attainment. That gives you a span. If you have a distribution that has a big lump on the left and a big lump on the right, then you know you need to do something. If it's a nice shaped curve that is around 100%, that's perfectly okay. That's what you aim and target for. That will also fulfill your budget, i.e., you just mentioned it as well. Don't plan for an average of 70. Plan for an average of 100 because that's what you want to achieve. That will also help retain your sales talent. Yeah, I think the first time I did the analysis, you know, coming out of business school and statistics, I expected this nice, well-shaped, well-formed bell curve. And what I saw, I believe, was like a trinomial curve of performance. And and I had to ask, you know, my mentor at the time, like, is this good, bad? Uh, what does this mean? Uh, type of thing. The less bell curve shaped it is, the more you know you have to fix something, you know there's a problem to address, which is one of the things that's beautiful about sales performance management. It actually gives you some ideas at the same time as to what you need to do to address it. Did you set quotas wrong? Did you give? Did you define the wrong portfolios of accounts? Did you misjudge the person's talent? So there's a plethora of things you can then address through it. So let's talk about your education for a second. Doctor, PhD, in what I would, in my mind, an unrelated field to sales compensation. Can you, can you talk to me about how this interdisciplinary education led you to success in sales compensation? So I'll, I'll try to keep it as short as possible. So yes, I have a PhD in physical chemistry doing molecular dynamic simulations, which is the theoretical part of neutron scattering. But most importantly, it's a lot related to computers and how things work. And so I shifted from there into the IT world of consulting, did a lot of work there for years, and at some point in my career was asked, would you like to do sales incentive comp? And of course, I was a little flustered as to why, but it was the combination of having a fair amount of experience in the sales environment, as well as due to the nature of my degree, a fair amount of experience in math modeling, simulations, and things like that, which truly help understand the technical side of it. At the same time, you have to understand the people side of it as well. So a comp person that can do only the math doesn't help, and a comp person that can only do the sales side of it doesn't help either. So you kind of have to find the mix of it. And that's one of the reasons I truly like this environment, because it's both intellectually challenging as well as, on the people side, rewarding. One of the ideas, I don't know if you're a sports fan or not, 
in college football the other day, they were showing uh, Nick Saban, the coach of Alabama. And they, were, they put up a graphic on the screen about his coaching tree. And it was a number of assistants that he had had that went on to become head coaches at other organizations. This is something that you've been very successful at. I run into a number of folks who have worked for you uh, over the years that are now the head of sales compensation at another company. With that in mind, what advice would you give to managers? How do, how do, how do you develop talent that goes on to be successful? And, and do you see that as a, a, a personal success uh, in your own career? I'm blushing to state for those who can't see me. Thank you for the compliment. I think the most important part is I never say people work for me. I say they work with me. And so I give them equal, equal, equal opportunity to be able to present their ideas, to promote their ideas, to work on complex ideas, and position them with senior execs just as much as I would, in that I don't always have to be standing at the front positioning ideas. Of course, I'll support whoever works together with me on the team. And so from that perspective, giving them the stage to be able to promote and grow while having their back, I think it's what helped me progress in my career. And I felt very supported. And so I tried to provide the same level of support to anybody who works together with me. Awesome. Thank you for that. Any commonly held belief in the sales compensation world uh, that you disagree with? <laughs> it's always our fault. <laughs> <laughs> so I think, so there's two things that always come to mind, and, and these are sort of the anecdotes that most sales comp people will bring forward, and that is, one is, what role should I choose so I can, I want to pay him this way, so what role should I be choosing? It's a myth that comp drives the role, it should be the other way around. The other one is, of course, let's do this because we think it's the right thing. So the myth is that sales comp is actually a strategy in itself. Without a corporate strategy, without a product strategy, without a sales strategy, i.e. the waterfall of events that lead to being able to define an incentive comp strategy has to be in place. Otherwise, the sales incentive comp strategy is bound to fail because if the above is missing, the below will fall apart. All right. As we end the, the near the time of our, our time together today, uh, we have two questions that we like to ask all of our guests. Uh, the first one is, who in the world of sales compensation would you most like to take to lunch? I always love going to lunch with Brian Butler, Rick Butler, former colleague who used to work at Cisco. It's always a pleasure. I always learn from him. It's always amazing to pick his brain for ideas. So he's one of my role models in this world. And the last question, is there a book that you could recommend to people? Uh, around either sales compensation, sales management, or general business? Um, David Giacelli, and I always get the last name wrong. You have to look it up. Sorry, from AGI or the Alexander Group. Pretty much provides the best starter kit for sales incentive comp for anybody who wants to engage in this field. And even for those who are fairly familiar with or have been around for a while, I scroll through it often enough to sort of read to reconfirm ideas and directions to make sure I'm not completely off the mark. So that's one book that I can highly recommend that everybody at least has in their 
filing cabinet to make sure that you can look it up. There's a lot of others, but that for me is one of the main ones. And the next part, sorry to add to that, think of sales incentive comp as a motivator, which means there's also a psychological aspect to it. So sometimes reading marketing books, one of my favorite is called The Hidden Persuader. It helps a lot to understand the psychology behind it, because even though that is targeted at sales itself, it helps understand how sales incentive comp can help motivate a salesperson to do something. All right. Sorry, those are two books. I always appreciate more book recommendations than less. If you can see behind me, I certainly like like to read and I'm always looking for what's the next great book. Thank you so much for your time today. We really appreciated you having having you on the Sales Compensation Show. I uh, enjoyed the conversation quite a bit. And thank you once again, and have a, a great day. Thanks for having me. The Sales Compensation Show was brought to you by Forma AI, the world's most advanced sales compensation solution. To learn more about how Forma AI makes sales comp more valuable to your business, visit Forma. AI. Find us by searching for Sales Compensation in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or anywhere else podcasts are found. And make sure to click subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. On behalf of the team here at Forma AI, thank you for listening and stay smart out there.